Empty Set Entertainment presents Slay, created by Scott Sigler. This story is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. Hey there, junkie. I am back from vacation. That's right. I was in Michigan working on future Slay episodes with Rob Otto. He is a full co-writer on the Slay series now. And let me tell you, getting to create stuff with a lifelong pal is pretty awesome. Rob and I work really well together. We've written two screenplays together. He is a co-author on Slay Season 1. He's deep in the writing of future Slay seasons. And we are cooking up something brand new on top of that. When I'll get to that new thing, I don't know, because I'm working on Warpath, the novel that should be out after Shakedown, book one of the crypt, which will be released October 3rd, 2023. As soon as I finish Warpath, it is time for the final draft of GFL book seven. Holy crap, do I have a lot going on. Let me freshen you up on Slay, and then we're all going to go exchange friendship bracelets. Previously on Slay, Lincoln and Shitbird left to fight for Kalista, while Billy just plain left. Frustrated and upset, he figured out how to break Magda's meshwork seal that kept him locked inside the old stone church. Meanwhile, Dante gathered his mercenaries together to prep them for the coming fight against Lincoln, Kalista, and her bodyguard, Bobby. Can Kalista call up enough troops to take on Dante's boys from Miami? Find out next on Slay, episode number 29. Billy's hands stung like they had been slashed with razors and dipped in rubbing alcohol. He still wasn't sure how he'd gotten through the door's magical bullshit. All he knew was that he had had to get out of that church. He'd quietly stared at the door, getting more and more frustrated. And the more frustrated he became, the more he saw the little threads and fibers that made up the door's seal. Barely at first, but they had become brighter. And then he had started to pull at them, like one might tug at the loose threads of an old t-shirt or at the white shreds around a hole worn through the knees of favorite jeans. Doing that had hurt, had stung his skin like he was unraveling a barbed wire knot, but he'd kept at it until the door, as crazy as it seemed, sort of understood what he wanted and let him out. He had run into the night, putting distance between himself and the church. He'd run until he left the factory district behind and entered neighboring Colina Grove. Seagrove had once housed many of the workers who'd kept Lumencia's canneries, auto plants, and tank assembly lines going. The hood was packed with ratty old apartment buildings and even a few freestanding houses, most of which were a good 80 years old. It hadn't taken Billy long to find an unlocked bike. If you left one unlocked in this area, was probably stolen anyway, so he had boosted it and continued on. He kept one eye to the night sky, expecting to see shitbirds circling above, looking for him. But Lincoln was off to protect Kalista, and the crow was probably with Lincoln. Billy didn't need to worry about Magda. She wasn't going anywhere. As for Ariella, 
She clearly didn't give a damn if Billy lived or died, so he doubted she'd search for him. Billy had to warn Grandma. She needed to get out of that apartment and find somewhere else to stay. And she was probably worried sick, probably wondering if Billy was even still alive. The same thing Big Hack's mother was doing, no doubt. Except Ma Hack would never get an answer as to her son's demise. Hack would just be missing. Billy felt bad for her. She was far from the first mother in the neighborhood to lose a son. Death by drugs, death by gangs, and death by cop were common enough. Or, in Joe's case, death by Lincoln Franks. Billy knew he had lost his shit in the training mat. Lincoln and Magda were trying to help him. A lost cause, though. Billy was no fighter. He wanted nothing to do with any of this violence. That was how Joe got unalived. That Lincoln didn't even know Joe's name, barely remembered killing him at all, it was too much. Yeah, Joe had danced with the devil in the pale moonlight. When you go to work for a gangster, a violent death is always a possibility. Joe had aimed the shotgun at Lincoln. Joe was no innocent, that was for sure. So why did Billy blame Lincoln for his death? Because Lincoln was a badass and could have put Joe down without killing him. That's why. Billy rolled the bike under the overhang of an abandoned shell station on 6th Street. He was taking a big risk. He wasn't going to rush it. If he couldn't safely get into his apartment without being seen, he would return to the church. But he had to try. He knew every alley, every abandoned building, every backlot dumpster in the area. He knew his neighborhood better than Butch did, better than the rolling outlaws did. Billy took a moment to break all of the reflectors off the bike. Then he watched, scanning the sidewalks, streets, and windows for any sign of Butch and his gang. Seeing nothing of concern, he rode on, carefully approaching Fifth Street. It was only one block from his building. One block from home. Slowly, carefully, silently, Billy rode to the back alley, hoping to take the same path to his apartment he had given Lincoln only a few days earlier. A car was parked at the corner of the alley entrance. Two men inside. One was Balake. You could tell from that big old five head of his. Billy didn't recognize the other guy, which meant he probably wasn't from the neighborhood. Butch was calling in outside help. Not good. Billy leaned back into the shadows. What was he doing? Butch's boys would shoot him dead on sight. And it wasn't just them. There were two metal video hotties who rode fucking gigantic magic panthers a Gandalf-looking asshat who floated through the air and sent razor-clawed mutant bats after people, and that white-suited, cowboy-hat-wearing guy with his two Neo lookalikes. And, of course, the drug-dealing goblin who paid them all. Man, I'm being an idiot, Billy whispered to himself. He waited a moment longer, looked up to his apartment window. The lights were off. Was Grandma up there? Sleeping? Maybe sitting in her living room chair, waiting for Billy to come home. She would have to wait a bit longer. 
better for her to think Billy might be dead than to eat a bullet and remove all doubt. If Lincoln had only let Billy call her, none of this would have been necessary. Cursing himself, cursing Dante for the contract on his head, and cursing Lincoln for being Lincoln, Billy turned, pedaled away, heading back to the church, the only place that he was safe. Shitbird circled low around Callista's building. To get a proper lay of the land, he should have gone higher, but Link had sent Shitbird images of Cradlebats. Shitbird did not want to mess with one of those four-winged fuckwads. He was already hungry, but not too much. Magda had given him Cheerios dipped in bacon fat. So good. But only ten of them. Why so stingy? Shitbird could have eaten the whole box. And the container of grease. And the pig the grease had come from. The building Lincoln wanted to know about was made of brick. Four stories with big windows that went almost from floor to ceiling. Each window was split in two down the middle, each half subdivided into panes. Five rows of five meant 25 little panes per half, 100 per window, times 17 windows on the long side and 12 on the short side, which made for 5,900 panes per story, times four stories, for a total of 23,600 little panes. Shitbird loved to count. Of course, many of the little panes were gone, replaced by plywood. Of those that remained, most were cracked in one way or another and painted black from the inside. There were enough loose spots or newer unblocked holes, though, for Shitbird to get a decent look inside all four stories. All were mostly empty. A few of the blanket people curled up on some floors. Maybe they slept there because they didn't have a nice place like the church's bell tower to nest in. Shitbird knew the area around this building. Mulligan's public house was up a block and across the street. Fantastic garbage there. They made a chicken pot pie that was to die for. In the summer, silly humans would throw chunks of pot pies into the dumpster. After three or four days of sweltering heat, the cream sauce seasoned up just so. And the chunks of chicken were delicious. Chickens were dumb. Not smart, like crows. There weren't as many cars on the street as Shitbird usually saw around here at this time of night. And he didn't hear the bass pulse of the annoying human mating call, which Lincoln referred to as dance music, coming from the building. Maybe the humans weren't in rutting mode tonight. Shitbird finished his slow circle. Far less people, yeah, but also a few that looked out of place. Seven men, one short, one tall, five in the middle, who weren't talking or walking or drinking or rutting. They were watching. Watching for Shitbird, maybe? Shitbird settled onto the pointed roof of a small old water tower atop a nearby building. The round, broken roof was made of wood. The tower didn't have water in it anymore. Shitbird did not want to be seen. Not by those men, not by the two women who'd thrown spikes at him, and definitely not by a cradlebat. He would wait. He would watch. He would dream of crackers, 
spoiled chicken pot pie and of that seagull that he was so going to nail. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. The club's silence felt disorienting. No flashing lights. The mirror ball hung still and motionless. No hormone and drug-addled kids swapping pills, needles, and bodily fluids. The place felt like a mausoleum. The dead dankness almost made Lincoln long for a bass drop by some emaciated, beanie-wearing Swedish DJ. Almost. Kalista was on her throne, with her club kids gathered around her in seductive poses, but they had all undergone a significant wardrobe change. The kids had abandoned postage stamp bras, thongs, leather collars, and vinyl for fatigues, tactical vests, and body armor. All black, of course. They'd set aside champagne flutes, vape pens, and glow sticks in favor of shotguns, submachine guns, pistols, knives, short swords, and spears. Look at this lot, Lincoln said. It's like the Spice Girls meets Delta Force. Hey, you foppish louts know what you're doing with all that gear? In response, Mercutio stepped forward. His armor was a bit more old school, black steel undoubtedly purchased in Cordis. He whipped a pair of butterfly knives in a short form of flashing blades punctuated by karate flick kiyas and a backflip or two. Discipline of attack, the pretty boy said, between spinning kicks is how we protect our goddess. To bleed for Kalista is marvelous. Oh, for fuck's sake. This is a bad idea, Kalista, Lincoln said. You don't have a better place to hole up? Kalista wore dark crimson armor straight out of a priest's recurring nightmares. Demonic was the only adjective for it. A slim sword with an onyx black handguard and a shiny red patent leather scabbard lay across her lap. On her right hip, a matching red holster from which protruded the handle of a sidearm. A luger. 
because of course it was. And, for some unknown reason, she had accessorized the combat-ready ensemble with a black-trimmed, red leather jacket straight out of a Michael Jackson video. As always, Bobby stood behind her throne, his hands atop his double-bladed axe. This is my home, she said. I have more power here than anywhere else. Besides, she spread her hands toward her dozen foptastic, well-armed followers. This is where my darlings can play. Lincoln looked to the Minotaur. Bobby, she's serious about this shit. This crew looks like the offspring of a drunken WB network that grudge-fucked the Wagner group. Bobby snorted a laugh, which made his big nostrils flare and the gold hoop in his nose jiggle. They may not look like much, Link, but they're not bad. Besides, we need the numbers. Word is, Dante brought in some unenlightened muscle from out of town, and he's making his move tonight. Usually, unenlightened thugs, even those whacked out on Nurple, weren't much of a problem. But that was when Lincoln controlled the initiative, when he could work from the shadows, control the angles, take them out one or two at a time. In a big space like this, and on the defensive, dozens of guns added up fast. Especially when there were four enlightened killers working with them. Still don't like it, Lincoln said. We should be out there, taking it to them. Kalista stood. It wasn't easy to look sexy in plate armor, but she pulled it off quite easily. If we don't know where they are, we wait, she said. I have scouts on the streets, but I'm afraid to say I've lost connection with half of them already. They are being hunted down. No surprise there. Oleus Oakbeard was probably identifying them via their connection to Kalista, then sending the others to remove them. Poor kids. Gary Sater clomped onto the dance floor. Mistress, I— For fuck's sake, Gary, Lincoln said. How many blades you got on you, bud? The satyr wore a loose white tunic straight out of a melodrama about ancient Greece. Over the tunic, he'd crossed bandoliers thick with throwing knives. He had two wicked-looking blades holstered at each hip, two more on each thigh of his goat legs. As my favorite author once said, Lincoln, you can never have too many knives. Mistress, the front door is secured. The magical seals have been doubled, and the team loaned to us by the Giovanni Syndicate is prepared with heavy weapons. Thank you, my pet, Callista said. Lincoln felt a sudden ringing inside his head. He closed his eyes, opened his thoughts to the images sent by Shitbird. Hey, Callista, Lincoln said. Remember when you told me, if we don't know where they are, we wait? Callista sighed. Yes, Lincoln, I remember, seeing as I said it all of 30 seconds ago. I assume that this is an effort to use a callback and dramatically tell me you know the location of my enemies. Well, wasn't she just an asshole? Magna would have played along. You're supposed to say, yes, why? Kalista sighed again. <sighs> yes, why? Because I know where Lincoln... If you think you can take one of the four out, then get to it, Kalista said. And take Mercutio with you. 
He has a connection to me, so I'll know whether you succeed or fail and die. For fuck's sake, he had to take the backstreet boy toy? You know, Kalista, a go get him tiger would have been nice. Come on, Mercutio. If your butterfly knives don't work, you can always give him a dose of blue steel. Shitbird had spotted the bad guys. They were already setting up. If all went well, Lincoln could cut their numbers down before the real brawl began. He didn't have to worry about Sam anymore. He didn't have to worry about Billy or Magda or Ariella. He didn't have to worry about money. All of those things took a back seat. Because now, it was time to fight. In the worlds of the enlightened, there were many, many disgusting things. Giant spiders made everyone's skin crawl. Oozing guffins stank so bad you couldn't be around them without vomiting, despite the fact that many people endured the stench in order to challenge the creatures at chess. And while shit gibbons were the absolute unchallenged royalty of nastiness, a cockeye wasn't all that far behind. The creature came up to Dante's hip. It had a floppy comb, reminiscent of a rooster's, hence the name, which was slathered in thick, gleaming slime, sweat, pus, or a combination of the three. The same foul substance matted what few downy feathers clung to its long body, which resembled a buzzard neck coated in rot. No feet for this beast. It moved about on eight stubby tentacles that looked like fat cow tongues. Atop that neck and below the comb was one eye squinted so shut the wrinkled lids looked like the pursed lips of an angry old woman. The other eye was beach ball big constantly trembling, lined with angry red veins, and had a black iris the size of a dinner plate. Oleus Oakbeard, Dante, and the cockeye stood on the roof of Callista's building. A half-dozen of Dante's operators took up positions at the roof's four corners, looking out at nearby buildings and down the street. Hogg and the Flechette sisters were getting into place. Soon, the battle would begin. The cockeye has not detected Franks or his flying familiar, Oakbeard said. If Franks is around, he's hidden his signature well. No surprise there. The perverted sex offender is good at his job. Oleus had a cradlebat on each shoulder. They had dimmed their iridescent scales and folded in their two sets of wings. They couldn't seem to hide their wicked talons, though, the hard points had punched through the small spots of Oleus's green robes, spots that were now wet with blood. The druid didn't seem aware of the damage. We've got the numbers, Dante said. If Frank shows, we'll get him. How about Callista and that Brahma bull bastard she's got with her? They are in the club. I can't specify where. I am casting a dome glamour. Callista won't be able to get away. Tonight, she lives or she dies. And if she didn't die, Dante would. Either by her hand, at the hands of those in her employ, or by Vestinians. I am burning a significant amount of thread for you, Mr. Oganov, Olia said. 
between the dome glamour and the totems I provided to Hog, you, I am aware of your expenses, Oakbeard. You'll get reimbursed for all of it. If, that is, you get the job done. Make that happen, Druid, and you'll find yourself with plenty of high-paying work. The hair on Dante's arms suddenly stood on end. An inexplicable sense of dread spread down his spine, lodged in his gut. The cockeye let out a sharp squeak, shut its huge eye. Olius, Dante said, do you feel that? The druid scanned the skies in sharp, urgent glances. I do. I have sensed that presence twice before in Lumencia. Someone is approaching, but I do not know who it is. Dante had felt raw energy like that only when meeting the most powerful enlightened. People like Kellius Droman, like Vestinian, like Zay Zamunda. But those auras carried signature scents, each unique like a fingerprint, and only detectable when the practitioner was burning thread at a high level. He didn't recognize this particular signature. A new player is in town, he said. Unfortunately, yes. By the feel of it, I believe this new player is searching for someone. Searching? For who? I've no idea, Olia said. No one near us, thankfully, for the present seems to be fading. Dante felt it too, felt the sense of dread drifting away. Keep looking for Franks, he said, and his bird. Better to know where Franks is before we make our move. You have been listening to Slay, created and read by Scott Sigler. Copyright 2023, Empty Set Entertainment. For more information on the author and more books, visit scottsigler.com. Theme music is the song They're Watching Me by the band Superweapon. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.